So uh, after the service, don't forget that you can grab a drink in the courtyard. You can carry on your conversations. And uh, hopefully it won't be too hot out there before you go. So don't rush off at the end of the service. Do come and say hello if you're new. Um, do you say hello to someone in the courtyard before you rush off. It's um, amazing to be at this stage, isn't it? As this week, we're expecting an announcement to loosen COVID restrictions. We're expecting to be giving you a big announcement this week about face masks and those kind of things. Um, but I find myself a lot reflecting on what's gone before us over this last year. We have all gone through this amazing thing, haven't we, called COVID. And not just COVID, but all sorts of other things that have come off the back of it. And I feel like there's been certain words that have really got into us this year. There have been words that have challenged us. There's been words that have caused something to rise up inside of us, not just the word Zoom, but other words as well. Um, and one of those words, I think, is the word justice. We have seen on the news so much over the last year phrases like social justice, racial justice, justice for immigrants, justice for families, justice for the poor, international justice, human trafficking, environmental justice. And of course, like very many of these are huge, complicated, difficult areas. Inside the church, outside the church, we found ourselves this last year debating and discussing and trying to work out what should our response be. And particularly as Christians, we've had to wrestle with, do we have any sort of response? Is there anything at all for us to talk about in any of these areas, or are we better just sticking to something else? Well, today, as we continue in our Nehemiah series, I want to think with you some more about what biblical justice looks like, what kingdom justice looks like, what God's justice on the earth feels like. And uh, we're going to do that by looking at Nehemiah chapter 5. So as always, when you come to Vintage, if you have a Bible with you in some form, that's really cool. Someone came with a gold leaf Bible yes, last week. I feel like we might need to have some sort of competition for the best Bible. I don't know, but probably most of you will have it on a device. And if you don't have it anywhere else, it'll be up on the screen. But we're reading from Nehemiah chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Okay, vintage family. The reading for today is from Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. 
Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, make God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. So up until this point in the book of Nehemiah, we've been thinking about the physical building of walls, the physical building of gates, the physical temple, physical spaces that people worshipped and lived in in Jerusalem. But today, actually, Nehemiah shifts slightly because it moves from thinking about the broken down walls of the city of God to think about the broken down ways of the people of God. Okay, you can have that little one for free. I found it on the internet, so it must be good. <laughs> and what we're seeing in verse one of today's passage is a massive outcry that has happened, not a riot, but like a protest in the land. And a protest has happened because people are literally in star they're starving, they're on the verge of poverty. It's the working classes, it's the blue collar workers, it's the poor of the land who are struggling massively. And it's happening for three reasons. The first reason we just read about is because there's a famine in verse three. There's a famine in the whole region. And when there's a famine in any land, food becomes scarce, food becomes more expensive. Who are the people who suffer the most? Of course, the people who don't have the money to pay the inflated prices. The second reason that there's a big problem is because of taxation. We read about the fact that they are under the king of Persia, which meant that probably that group of people, all of them, rich and poor, would have been paying about 50% of their income to go back to the king of Persia. And then the third reason that they're struggling financially is because a lot of them, of course, are not working because they're busy building gates and they're busy building walls. And the result is that the people are starving. The people are on the verge of poverty. The people are desperate. And because they're desperate, people are exploiting them. And it's not people who are outside who are exploiting them. It's actually their fellow Jewish brothers, the nobles, the rich people in society are exploiting the poor. How? They're doing it by lending money, lending food at such a rate that cannot be repaid. Like payday loan level lending, right? And what's happening is that when these poor people can't repay their loans, what's happening is they are having to sell their own children to be slaves of the rich 
pay off the debts that they are incurred. It's a shocking situation. It's a difficult situation. It's a painful situation, but it's a situation that maybe some ways we recognize in different spaces. And we're going to see today how Nehemiah's response to that and God's response actually teaches us a lot about God's heart and about justice. So here's the first thing that we want to talk about this morning, and it's this, is that justice flows from God's very being. Justice flows from God's very heart. If you turn to Psalm 89, verse 14, it says this, Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. That God is the very definition of what is right in the world. God is the very definition of what justice is. God is the standard of holiness. God is the standard of perfection. God is the standard of everything that is right in the world, and therefore everything that is opposite like that, than evil and death and the devil, is opposed to God's holiness, to God's righteousness on the earth. And because God is holy, because God is righteous, because God is perfect, God enacts his justice in two different ways on the earth. The first way that God enacts his justice is actually in retributive justice. Now, we don't like this one very much in the modern church, but it's real. And effectively, it goes like this, that when God is holy, God looks down at things that are broken and in painful and rebellion against him, and God cannot be silent to that. God cannot sweep sin under the rug. God cannot just turn his back and walk away. That when things are broken, when things are sinful, then something has to be done. And that the retributive act is something about the wrath of God on the earth. Now, we go like this, like, oh my goodness, no, don't talk about wrath of God. That's not allowed in church anymore. We left that one behind 100 years ago. But actually, the retributive action of God is really good news. Because what it basically says is that there is a standard of good and there is a standard of evil. You know, if you think about a judge for a minute, you know, the best judges, if they're in the Supreme Court or if they're here in the High Court or wherever it might be, you know, those judges, when they're presented with a murderer or a rapist or, an, or something really bad, what do we expect? We expect that they will enact justice. And when we say that, what we mean is that there will be a punishment for what is wrong. And the same thing is true on the earth, that when God looks at things that are in rebellion against him, he isn't silent about that. There is a penalty, that there is a pain. But the reason it's good news is because God has already dealt with it, right? Because God sent his one son to pay the penalty of all your mess and all my mess and all your sin and all my sin and all your brokenness and all my brokenness. And God dealt with it. And he dealt with it on the cross, which means that when God looks at us, he doesn't actually see us in that place of brokenness and darkness and in need of punishment or whatever it might be. He actually sees us as whole, right? And that is really good. And if you're not here as a Christian this morning, may I encourage you to think really long and hard about whether you want to become a Christian because one of the amazing benefits of becoming a Christian is that you find that your penalties and your brokenness and your darkness no longer have to define you. And actually that if you become a Christian today, God wipes your slate clean. God takes your rap sheet and he leaves it and puts it in the trash and he clothes you in righteousness today. That is the retributive uh, action of the justice of God. But in fact, that's not the main form of justice that God talks about in the Bible. In fact, that's only a very small part of the justice that God talks about in the Bible. Much more often, actually you read about the restorative justice of God. That what God is most concerned about when he looks down from the place of perfection is not punishing sinners, talking about them as miserable or whatever the old language was. But it's actually that God's greatest heart is to restore what is broken to what is right. 
to restore what is in pain to wholeness, to restore what is sinful to holiness again. That is the restorative action of God, that God is always moving, that God is always working in your heart. He's always working in my heart to transform us, to take us out of darkness and into light, out of brokenness and into healing, out of despair and darkness and into a place of the kingdom. That's what God is always at work doing. That is the restorative justice of God on the earth, right? And it's good. It's beautiful, it's transformational. And it means that, as we see in this passage today, when Nehemiah understands this kind of justice, it demands a response in him. It says um, in, in verse six, when I heard the outcry and these charges, when I heard all that was broken, I was angry, it says, and I pondered. I don't know how many of you need, to, when you're angry, need to ponder. I feel like I could do with those two words joined together a little bit more in my own life. He's angry and he ponders. And what, in fact, Nehemiah ponders is probably Leviticus 25. Now, Leviticus 25 is the law. It was the Jewish law. Nehemiah is a leader in the Jewish community. And so he would have known what it says. It says in Leviticus 25, verse 35, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so that they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And effectively what the law said was, look, God has canceled the debts of the people of Israel. God took them out of slavery and captivity in Egypt and he brought them to a place of freedom and wholeness and healing. And so therefore, anything, anything at all that takes people from a place of freedom to a place of bondage is an absolute abhorrence to the kingdom of God. You with me? Anything that is good, anything, anything that is good that gets turned into something is bad, anything that goes from freedom to slavery is not of the kingdom of God because God's justice is always to move people from brokenness to light. And if you don't believe me, look at what the life of Jesus, right? You know, when Jesus was on the earth, the three most influential, important years of human history that happened 2,000 years ago, Jesus must have been a busy guy doing all the things he needed to do on the earth. And yet, where do you find Jesus so often? Is he in the palaces? Is he proclaiming to the rich and the powerful? No, where do you find Jesus? With the prostitute, with the lonely, with the leper, with the sick, with the hurting, with the outcast. And what's he doing? He's healing them. He's caring for them. He's loving them. He's protecting for them. He's speaking for them. That God's justice moves us from the place of darkness and brokenness into the place of healing and light. That's what biblical justice actually is. When we think about justice, we can get very caught up in like the latest terms, can't we, of racial justice or social justice or um, um, environmental justice or whatever the latest term is. But what we need to understand is that fundamentally behind any current world event, that God is concerned with justice on the earth. And that justice that God is concerned with is making what is broken right again. Are you with me? It's good. It's really good. And here's the beautiful thing, that it's God's heart for justice that actually overflows and leads us to justice on the earth. If you know this very famous verse, Micah 6, chapter 8, many of you will have heard it before, but it says this, he who is God has told you, man, what is good, and what, the, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Just notice those words for a minute. He, God, has already told you what he wants from you. Not even what he wants, but what he requires from his people. What does he require from his people on the earth? Three things. To do justice. To love kindness. To walk humbly. See, those three things are really important when you join them together. I think some people are good at justice, but they're maybe not very good at kindness. Some people are very good at kindness, but they're not very good at justice. But these things come together. Kindness, justice, humility come together. This is what God requires. And how do we do that? Because we find them when we walk humbly with God. Right? You know when you're with somebody, and if you're really close to them, if you know, they're a child of yours or a family member or if you're married to someone, if you get very close to someone, actually, you start to really feel what they feel. If, if a small child comes up and they really kind of like nestle in, you can actually hear their heartbeat sometimes. You know, you can really feel those same things that they're feeling. And that's what this Bible verse tells us about. It tells us that when we come close to God, when we walk with him, when we come close to that place of intimacy with God, what do we find is that we actually start to hear the heartbeat of God for the world. We start to feel what God feels for creation. I don't know if you've ever felt those things that God feels. I don't know if your heart has ever been broken for the things that breaks God's heart. It's a powerful thing when that happens, when God gets hold of someone. You know, when here at Vintage, we have this very high value of worship. We have this very high value of prayer and fasting. But we don't just do it to make ourselves feel better or to sing nice songs or to take up time in our day to feel more pious. No, the reason we have this value of intimacy with God is because as we draw near to God, we start to hear his heartbeat. As we draw near to God, that our heart starts to break for the things that breaks God's heart. As we draw near to God, that he starts to speak to us about the things that he wants to see happen in our lives and around us. As we draw near to him, we find healing comes to us, but it also comes through us to the rest of the world. It's a beautiful, fantastic thing. And when Nehemiah hears this, when he hears this injustice, but he also hears God's heart for justice, what he says in verse 9 is, what you're doing is not right. Now, that's probably like an under-English translation. I think Henry Cloud last week would have had a better translation of that verse if you heard him last week. I think it would have included some expletives and other things. But like this guttural cry comes from Nehemiah. This is not of the kingdom. This is not okay. Now, do you notice that Nehemiah doesn't even go looking for injustice? Because I think this is one response that you could go to with this. It's like, let's go injustice hunting on the world. And I feel that you know, if you do that, it probably is quite an annoying thing to do. It's probably like a little bit like being one of those Yelp reviewers who goes and eats at restaurants just so that you can leave a negative review when asked if you're one of those people. Or you stay at the hotel inspectors or the police who are going out looking for things that are wrong. Let's just be honest, if we lived in that way, it would be quite a disappointing and difficult way to live. But what do you see in Nehemiah is that on his watch, within his authority, within the time and space that he has, there is this moment, there is this responsibility that he has, and his response is a response of justice. You know, I think it's so beautiful when God gets hold of our hearts for something that's on hold of his heart. You know, I, I feel like over the last few years, God's spoken to me a lot about it, the environment, 
about creation, about the way that we treat the planet, because I realize it's justice, because if I do something here, it actually impacts somebody who lives in Bangladesh. If I do something now, it impacts somebody who lives in 100 years. This is an area of justice. But what I also realize is that I can't go around judging everybody else for whether or not they recycled their plastic bottles today. Like, I can't go around looking at everybody's roofs and asking, do you have a solar panel on your roof, and getting angry if they don't. You know, that's not justice, that's judgment, right? And, and Jesus says, don't go looking for the speck in other people's eyes. Look for the plank in your own. But here what we see is that Nehemiah has a particular heart for a particular situation. There's a particular thing happening on his watch that he needs to do something about it. And I wonder this morning, like, what might God want to put on your heart? What, who's the person? What's the situation? What's the event that's occurred that God might want you to respond to from his heart and his Holy Spirit? William Wilberforce was uh, a very well-known British gentleman. He was born in 1759 in the north of England. Um, He was born at a time when somewhere between 35,000 and 50,000 West African slaves were were kidnapped every single year and transported to the Caribbean and North America. Uh, He became a politician, not for any good reason, but because he wanted to be rich and powerful. But in 1786, he came to faith in Jesus. He had a radical conversion that the Holy Spirit got hold of his life, turned everything about who he was upside down. And he wrote these words. He said, so enormous, so dreadful, so irredeemable did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. And so William Wilberforce, along with some other Christians in London called the Clapham Sect, got together and started to put bills to Parliament to see slavery abolished in the British Empire. In 1789, he put a bill to Parliament seeking to see slavery banned forever, and it failed. In 1791, he put another bill it failed. In 1792, another bill, and it failed. In 1793, failed. 1797, 1798, 1799, all the bills failed. In 1804, he put a bill, and it failed. You see the pattern here. In 1805, he put a bill, and it failed. But in 1807, along with his friends, he put a final bill just before his death to Parliament to see slavery abolished in the empire and it passed. Slavery was abolished forevermore in the British Empire. It cost him most of his life, it cost him a lot of his health, but the world was transformed through the saving actions of God working through William Wilberforce. When you see a sign of someone who God has got hold of their heart and with a particular issue, with a particular moment, it's actually one of the most challenging and beautiful things, right? Think about Martin Luther King. Think about others in this nation and other nations who have been transformed by the power of the gospel that has changed the way that they work in the world. Now, you know, you might be sitting there and going, that's fine, Ben, like I'm not called to be William Wilberforce or Martin Luther King, like that's just once in a generation stuff. But actually, there's areas of justice that we all have responsibility for that God can speak into in every part of our lives. Um, I remember, you know, about 10 years ago, running a, a business in the automotive sector 
and we were subject to a takeover bid. A guy came in, tried to buy the company, um, and he was notorious, unethical, not very nice. And he put a huge amount of pressure on me to change the way that we employed people. He didn't want to pay benefits. He didn't want to give holiday pay. He didn't want to do any of that kind of stuff. And so I was constantly under pressure. Like, you've got to get rid of these people. You've got to pay less money. You've got to do this. And I, I felt really strongly like, no, God, this is part of who I am as a businessman. I have to stand firm. I have to hold firm to what I know is the right way to treat people. And it was difficult, like a whole bunch of sleepless nights went past. But eventually, actually, we were subject to a government audit about the way we employed our 50 staff. And, and the government audit came in and said, no, look, right, you have to pay them benefits. You have to do this stuff. And fortunately, that's exactly what we'd done because we'd held fast. But because this guy ran a whole bunch of other businesses, the government also audited his businesses and found out that he was entirely in the wrong and he faced a huge amount, a huge backlash and actually had to pull out of buying our business. It wasn't easy, it wasn't overnight, but it was an issue that I felt God put so strongly on my heart. Now, we may even go, well, hold on a minute, I'm not even a business leader, Ben. It's like I'm not even, you know, I'm, I'm just me. But every day, you know, we make choices. I talked about the environment. You know, we make choices in how we treat the poor. We make choices in how we use our money. Every dollar we spend is in some way caught up as a justice issue because it affects somebody else on the planet. You know, I'd say again, like this morning, what might God want to stir in your heart? And we're going to pray in a minute for that. What might God want to do in you to speak to you about his heart for other human beings, for his people around the world? Here at Vintage, we're part of the Big Anglican Network, and one of our marks of mission is this. It is to transform unjust structures of society, to challenge violence of every kind, and to pursue peace and reconciliation. This is the justice of the kingdom, not from our gender or our nationality, or when we see something on the news or because of our political affiliation, but actually from God himself when he speaks into our lives. And it's a beautiful thing, right? I mean, before I, you completely check out, like, it's actually an amazing journey. I have loved how God has got hold of my heart on some things. You know, I told this story before, but when Laura and I first got here, the first thing that I wrote on my wall in the house where we were living was just the words, how will the poor win? And it wasn't, it wasn't a good phrase, but it was my heart to say, we cannot plant a nice middle-class church in a nice neighborhood that services for nice people if it doesn't transform the lives of the broken and the lost around us. Now, I didn't even know what to do with that, but I prayed. And off the back of praying many months later, it was my son William who found a little homeless community living under a bridge, just like literally by my house. And every day I'd driven over this bridge and I didn't know that this family was living underneath the bridge. And on Thanksgiving last year, we were able to you know, share dinner with this family and we've gone on to have a great friendship with them and Ali and I and Laura, we go down and we've just finished doing Alpha with them, which has been really fun and crazy and all sorts of things at the same time. But, but I got a, a phone call from them like about three months ago now saying, Ben, we've just been told a local resident has, has complained. We've basically got less than a day to pack up all our stuff and get out from under the bridge and we can't do it. And sadly, by the time that I got down there, the police had come in, they'd confiscated all their stuff, they'd left them literally just sitting in the dirt with nothing other than the clothes that they had and their bicycles. 
And the phone call basically, the next phone call said, look, Ben, I, we don't know what to do. We have no food. We have no clothes. We've got nothing to do. What do we do tonight? And as Vintage, together, we were able to get them off the street. We were able to get them into housing that night. We were able to kind of start the process. But it was interesting because that night was also the night of the Arcadia City Council. And the Arcadia City Council meeting was to propose to build homeless accommodation in Arcadia, tiny housing, if you've ever heard of it. It involves counseling and care and services to get people permanently off the street. And through you know, me being able to speak to that, through a lot of other people speaking to it, through one of our homeless guys also getting on that call and speaking to it, actually we were able to see the tiny homes project like move forward. Now it wasn't me being a pastor, it's actually been much more messy and complicated than that because other residents have since kicked off and said, we don't want homeless accommodation in our city, it's gonna ruin our city and maybe we're gonna have to go through that whole process and I don't know where it's gonna lead. But it's not me preaching to homelessness. It's me following the kingdom of God to see where it takes us. And I wonder, I wonder where God might want to take you. But here's the final thing that I want to say this morning, which is this, is why this matters. It's because I actually think this is the foundation for seeing kingdom building in the next years to come. You see, um, in this passage, what we see is that no kingdom building happens. In every other chapter of Nehemiah so far, we've seen plans made, we've seen bricks put together, we've seen walls go up, whereas actually here in this chapter, nothing happens. Nothing happens, why? Because there is infighting, because there is injustice in the church. Actually, when there is injustice in the church, no kingdom building happens. When there is infighting inside the church, no kingdom building happens. When we are distracted from the things on God's heart, then actually no kingdom building happens. And I believe that actually it's as we take the kingdom of God and allow God to speak justice through us that actually God's kingdom will be built in Pasadena and beyond. You know, we're getting data through all the time now and the data that tells us about church stats tells us that in the US currently, you know, the, the church is almost its lowest popularity, whatever that means, as it's ever been. You know, that if you're under the age of 35, whether you grew up in the church, or whether you didn't grow up in the church, right now you've probably got some very serious questions about the, whether you want to be in church in the future. And there's a question for all of us as, as Christians, it's like, well, what does it mean to be part of God's kingdom on earth? You know, we've seen all this kind of criticism about leadership in the church, about how we've responded to different things that have happened in the world. But I believe that this is one of the ways that God is gonna use the church to speak hope again. In 2013, um, something kind of very weird happened uh, on the earth. I don't know if any of you know a guy called Justin Welby. Um, he's kind of like my big bosses, 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 something. Um, he's the head of the Anglican communion of churches around the world. Uh, he happens to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. If you've ever seen a, a, a royal wedding, he's the dude with the really weird dress on who's not the bride in the middle of the cathedral. That, that's basically who he is. Um, but he used to be, he used to be part of a Holy Trinity Brompton church that many of us know. He, he used to be an executive in the oil industry. But in 2013, he was confronted by this massive rise of payday loan lenders in the United Kingdom, and particularly a company called Wonga. And Wonga were exactly like the people in this passage. But what Wonga did was that they lent money to people before their paydays and then on their paydays, they had to take it back, except that they didn't take the same amount back. They took like another 50% or another 80% or another 100%. And they were putting people over and over again into bankruptcy, into debt, into starvation, into poverty. 
And Justin Welby felt this cry of God to say, no, this is not okay. This is not of the kingdom. And so on national television, he announced before the world that they were going to, the church was going to put Wonga out of business through public persuasion, through different means of lending to people, through credit unions, they were going to see the world transformed. And by 2018, Justin Welby had put Wonga out of business. In fact, not just Wonga, they'd managed to put almost that whole industry out of business in the United Kingdom. It came through prayer, it came through fasting, it came through you know, this cry of injustice. And I tell you about it, not just to give an example, but I tell you about it because where I come from in the United Kingdom, if you read the press about the church, almost always it's entirely negative. It's always complaining, it's always moaning, it's always putting the church down. This situation in 2018, these articles that came in the national press were the most positive articles I have ever seen the press write about anything. Because they basically said this, this is what the church is supposed to be leading us in. This is how the church is supposed to be teaching us about how to do justice, about how to care for the poor. And there's been this whole movement that's come through that about justice. And so as I, I finish this morning, I just want to ask that same question, and then we're going to give space again. Like this morning, what is the area that God might want to stir in your heart today? Like what's, what's the thing? What's the thing that he might want to speak to you? It, mi- it might be about the environment. It might be about that. It might be about anything. It might even just be about you know, your heart breaking for a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. All these are part of the justice equation, but I believe that God has so much that he wants to do. So if you, if you want to, I'm just going to invite you to pray with me. And I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to, to come and to, to stir our hearts for the things that stir God's heart.